0: Hey, we are in a series called Messy Church, and uh, the truth of the matter is uh, church is messy because church isn't a building, church is people. And anytime you have two or three believers together in Jesus' name, the word of God promises that Jesus is in their midst. But I can tell you from personal experience, there are also messes that will be in your midst because we're people and we bring all of our dysfunction and our selfishness and our pride and all that stuff into the picture. And so we're talking about messy church and do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and say, you are messy. (laughs) If you're watching online and you're watching with someone, you can do the same thing, you are messy. Some of the people in this room just got way too much excitement out of saying that uh, to the person next to you. Yeah, messy. And so part, part of what we're doing is we really, we believe the Word of God is living and active and the Word of God wants to teach us. And so we've been, uh, over the last couple of months, looking at the book of Acts, And Acts is a book in the New Testament, it's the first book after the Gospels, and it really is short for actions, it's the actions of the early church, really the first 30 years of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, uh, we see a picture of that first 30 years of the church in the book of Acts. And so we've been just going through, I mean we started at at the very beginning with chapters 1 and 2, and just kind of going through the book of Acts and looking at some of the messiness that this first generation of Christians uh, struggled with and that they experienced experience and trying to see how we can learn lessons from that. And so today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, and I would really encourage you to look this up in your own Bibles. Uh, Maybe you have a paper Bible, maybe you have an app on your phone or on a device, and you can follow along that way with us. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture together, so make sure you find that. As as you're turning to Acts chapter 10, uh, I think probably to help us frame this, we've got to understand that Jesus' followers, even though they had been followers of Jesus for a number number of years, they still struggled with issues that were blind spots to them. Issues of dysfunction and brokenness and pride and self-centeredness. And I think that this really helps us because sometimes we think, hey, I prayed a sinner's prayer. I've started attending church. Like, I've arrived. And the truth of the matter is you haven't. And I haven't. And even Jesus' first followers hadn't arrived. They were still in need of growth. They were still in need of change and transformation. And this is part of the reason why we call ourselves Journey Church. And we recognize that this is a journey of following Christ. It's not a prayer, pray a prayer and you're done. No, it's every day being committed to being transformed uh, through the renewing of our minds. And so. So another thing you need to know about this early church uh, to help us get into Acts chapter 10 today is that it's important to realize that every follower of Jesus in the early church, by every I mean most, probably about 98% of the followers of Jesus in this first generation were Jewish. And so right before Jesus ascended to the Father, we read this in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the verse before, tells us that Jesus gave his followers a simple commandment, He said, You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so, and then verse nine, he ascends, he goes into heaven, and his followers are like, Whoa, okay, that's crazy. And they stayed in Jerusalem, and they stayed in Jerusalem, and they stayed in Jerusalem. And they didn't leave Jerusalem like Jesus had commanded them to. In fact, it took the persecution of the church for them to finally leave Jerusalem. And when they did finally leave Jerusalem, they would only take the gospel, the good news of who Jesus was, to other Jews. And the question is, well, why why did they do that? Well, the, the reason is simple, because in the minds of the early followers of Jesus, there were the Jews, and then there was everybody else. There were the Jews, and then there were the uncircumcised, pagan, Gentile heathens, right? Uh, the Romans, the, the, the other idolatrous, all these other people. And so, and so these Jewish people just, they didn't even have a category in their minds that God would want these heathens, these pagans, to come to faith in Christ. And, and part of this was they just really didn't interact with non-Jews. In this first century in particular, the Jewish people had been so, they had, they had experienced so many injustices at the hands of the Gentiles. They had, they had been the victims of so much crap through the generations that they just, they didn't interact with non-Jews. They didn't shop amongst non-Jews. They didn't do business among non-Jews. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to tell you a name of a friend that they had who wasn't Jewish themselves. And so they, they were, in fact, prohibited, and we'll see this later on in the word of God, from even stepping foot into the home of a Gentile. So this was very much ingrained in their minds. So when Jesus told them to go and make disciples of all the nations, here's what they were thinking. They were thinking, okay, we'll go to the other nations, we'll find the Jews that live in these other nations, and we'll convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, and then we will be obedient to the mission of Christ. But that's not what Jesus had meant. And so God has to wake them up. God has to help them get beyond kind of these biases and this immense blind spot that they have, and he does it in a very unique way, and that's really what we're going to talk about today, is a story of how God got them to go beyond themselves and to get beyond their biases to take the message of his good news to people beyond themselves. You guys ready? Everybody ready for this? So we're going to start in Acts chapter 10, and we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, in Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. So let's just pause right here. We have this character in our story named Cornelius. And Cornelius is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Not only is he a Gentile, he is a Roman soldier. Not only is he a Roman soldier, he is actually a captain over at least 100 other Roman soldiers. He would be like, uh, I mean, this guy, he would be disgusting in the eyes of a Jew. He was a Roman occupier. I mean, there's nothing good in the minds of Jewish people about a guy named Cornelius. But there's something different about him. And verse 2 says, he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Well, that's kind of a plot shift here because... Here's this guy that you would think is a Jew, that you would know everything about him, but yet there's something immensely different about him. Somewhere along the way, we don't know, we don't get the details. Cornelius had become sick and tired of the Roman Greek idolatry, and somehow he had gotten exposed to the religion of the Jews. Maybe, you know, some of the Jewish synagogues were actually open air. Maybe he had just, he wouldn't have been allowed into a synagogue for sure. But maybe at some point he started hearing their teachings and became curious, and somewhere along the way, he became a follower of the Jewish God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though he was a Gentile. And not only did he become a follower of this one true God, like it impacted everything about him. This man who would be incredibly wealthy, incredibly influential, incredibly powerful, started giving of his own resources to help others. And God took notice God looked down from heaven and said, there's something different about Cornelius. And he knew that there was no way that these Jewish believers were gonna share the message of Jesus with him unless God intervened and did something drastic. Verse three says, one afternoon about three o'clock, Cornelius had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is, what is it, sir, he asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers, And your gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa, that's a city, and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. Okay, so let's just stop right here. So he's giving these directives. He said, hey, send some men. He will, in fact, send three guys to Joppa. God gives him the address through this angel, gives him the address. And he says, you're to seek out a guy named Peter, right? Now this is Peter, who is one of the 12 disciples. This is Peter, who is a leader at the day of Pentecost. But Peter is still, even though he followed Jesus physically for three years, and he's been following Jesus even ever since Jesus' ascension, Peter has no category for being able to reach out to Gentile people. So God is going to have to do something inside of Peter and get Peter's attention to help him to realize that this really is of him. So let's skip down to verse nine. Are you guys all still with me? Okay, trying to just, all right. Verse nine. The next day as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. You guys know how that feels, right? Because we're about an hour away from lunch and some of you guys are already hungry, right? Amen, yeah. But while a meal was being prepared, Peter fell into a trance. So he's, he's seeing a, this is a vision that's being given to him by God. He falls in his trance. He saw the sky open, And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners, and in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. For Peter, this is a what the what moment, right? Like, what you expect me to do, what? Like, every creature that is on this sheet that's being, uh, you know, descending from heaven in front of him, every creature in there is totally off limits, would not be allowed on any Jewish menu, no ands, ifs, or buts about it, right? I mean, they are forbidden, strictly forbidden food in the diet of a Jewish person. But he knows this is the voice of God. We're gonna see this very clearly in a moment. And so he, he, he sees this and he hears God say, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter's like, surely this is a test, right? We, we, know, we know the anxiety that's being produced here because verse 14, no, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. You hear the tension that's going on here for Peter? Like, he, he knows this is God's voice, but his biases his prejudice, his experiences growing up are preventing him from obeying the voice of God. And I would submit to you that 2,000 years later, that some of us at times can hear the voice of the Lord, but because of our biases, we kind of tell God no, or we make excuses or we figure out how to distance ourselves from what we feel like God is speaking to us. And I love the patience of God, Right? Let's keep going, verse 15, but the voice spoke again, the voice of the Lord, by the way, the voice of the Lord spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times, then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Three times this goes on, why because Peter didn't get it the first time, and he didn't get it the second time. This is Peter we're talking about, right? And God has to, he has, okay, Peter, we're going to do this a couple times here to get, to get and, and Peter was a guy who was known for the number three, wasn't he? Denied Jesus three times, and, and, and Jesus comes and restores him in John 21, and, and he restores him three times, and so, so there's a whole other sermon we could talk about there. But the sheet is suddenly pulled up to heaven. In verse 17, Peter was very perplexed. Our man is confused, right? I mean, he doesn't, he's like, okay, what is going on here, right? What could the vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house, and standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Verse 19, meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up. Go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. This, this, I wish I had an ability to really clearly communicate how crazy this would be for Peter in this moment. So you got these three Gentiles now that are at the gate of you know the host. He's, it's not even his home. It's his friend's home that he's staying in. And, and they're like, can we come in? And Peter's like, no, you're Gentiles. You can't. But he, he, so first, imagine this. He lets them into Simon the Tanner's home. And then if you keep reading, they stay overnight. They eat at his table. And then the next morning, they set out on a journey from Joppa to Caesarea, which would be 25 to 35 miles, together, so now he's hanging out with them, and that's a long journey, right, to just be hanging out together. And then they get to Cornelius' home, and Peter does something that he's never done in his life. In fact, we're going to see this in a moment, clearly in Scripture, that Peter had never done this before. Peter is going to step over the threshold of Cornelius' home. He's going to enter this home, And he's going to eat at their table, and he's going to fellowship with these people, not just for an hour, but like for several days. And this is huge for Peter. I love what Rich Villadas, who is a pastor of a church in Queens, a full gospel church in Queens, he says this, he says, The real question of Christian discipleship is not, can I be your brother in Christ, but can I be your brother-in-law? Like when I saw that, I was like, man. Like it's not just can we go to the same church, can we be in the same small group together, but can we be family? Can we eat together? Can we like really get to know each other? Can we fellowship with each other? Can we include each other? So, so Peter actually tells them when he steps over the threshold and he starts talking to these guys, these Gentiles, a house packed with Gentiles, Peter says this to them. He goes, uh, this is in verse 28, Peter told them, you know, it is against our laws For a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this, or to associate with you. Way to begin a conversation, you know, to bring unity, right? Like He says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. this, This is amazing what's going on. So Peter enters in this home, and then if you keep reading, he begins to share the gospel with him. He said, and who better to share the gospel than Peter? Peter goes, Man, let me tell you guys, man, it's so awesome that you're worshiping our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to tell you what our God has done because of the sinfulness of humanity, because of how much we have rejected God, and because we, we really, uh, the relationship with Him has been totally broken. He says, God did something unique. He sent His own Son, a man named Jesus, to be one of us. A stranger one of us, a slab like one of us, to quote one of the great poets of, of my generation, none of, the, none of the young people would know. And he goes, and, and I watched him. I watched him teach, and I watched him perform miracles, and I watched him heal people, and I watched him do all these incredible things, and then, like, what really amazed us is he, of his own accord, voluntarily, allowed himself to be falsely charged and put on trial and then falsely sentenced to die and brutally executed. And he did all that to take upon himself our sins. And then three days later, he was resurrected from the grave and he busted through the wall of death and he proved that he has all authority to forgive us, to be our master, to be our leader, to be our guide through life, to lead us. And he says, this is the gospel. And somewhere along the way in him presenting the gospel, Acts chapter 10 tells us this in verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And then we have this. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave them orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him, asked Peter and his friends to stay with them, these unclean Gentiles, for several days. I'm telling you, many commentators will tell you that this is a hinge point in the book of Acts. That from this point forward, like it's all of a sudden like the light bulb comes on for these Jewish believers and they recognize that's what Jesus meant. That's what Jesus meant. As I've been reading through this account for for several weeks now, there's several lessons that, I'll be honest, have been challenging me and that that I'm chewing on. And and, and I want to present to us as a congregation to think about, especially in the times that we live in. Here's three, three lessons. Number one, realize that you have natural biases that blind you. Everybody in this room, I don't care who you are, I don't care how highly educated you are or how little education you've had, I don't care what kind of home you grew up in, everybody in this room has natural biases that blind you. This is true for Peter. And think about it, Peter had been with Jesus, the man like physically had been with Jesus for three years and yet he still has these biases that blind him. He he had been raised to feel superior, morally and spiritually superior to Gentiles because he was a Jew. And can I tell you that at times, I'm tempted to think that I am superior to other people because of my education level, because of my upbringing. I mean, I'll just confess that there are times I'm in Walmart and I'll see someone with that gold M in the midst of a navy blue hat. And I just think, man, I am superior to this person in every way, right? See, here's the truth of the matter is we all have biases, Every single one of us have biases. And so can I ask you, just seriously, can I ask you, do you compare yourself to others? Do you find yourself feeling superior? Maybe because of your knowledge of God. Maybe because of your nationality. Maybe because of where you went to school. Maybe because of what you do for a living. Do you you find yourself thinking about other people in a superior way? You know, there's so many different biases, I've been reading about biases this past week. In fact, if you're struggling to go to sleep tonight, go to Google and type in list of biases, list of biases, and you will find hundreds, probably thousands, millions of articles on this. Sociologists, psychologists, talk about the, the different biases that we struggle with. I, I wanna tell you two of them that kind of, you know, I was going, ooh, man, that's, that can be me. One is a self-serving bias. Self-serving bias is that I take credit for the positive outcomes of my life, but I blame other people for the negative outcomes of my life. It's called the self-serving bias. Here's how how this plays out in our culture. In our culture, everybody thinks that they're above average. There have been thousands of studies done where they'll, they'll look at almost any kind of topic and they'll ask people, would you rate yourself as, are you either above average, average, or below average? And it's amazing how in almost all these studies, like 90% of Americans will say, I'm above average. Can I tell you, according to the system of how average works, everybody can't be above average. In fact, everybody can't be average. Somebody's gotta be below average. Here is a funniest study, I, this was sh- so humorous. They did a study where they went into a multitude of hospitals and they were specifically looking for people who were in the hospital because they had been in an automobile accident and it was their fault. Okay, it's their fault and they asked them the question, rate yourself as a driver. Are you above average, average, or below average? And wouldn't you believe a majority of the respondents who are in the hospital because of an automobile accident that they caused rated themselves what? Above average. <laughs> Lies, right? <laughs> right? What, what is that? It's the self-serving bias. And we're, we can all, especially in a Western culture like this, like in a culture where everybody gets A's, everybody's above average. You're not above average in everything. There are things that you don't know. There are things that I don't know. There are areas of my life where I am below average and I know it hurts to hear it. But I've gotta understand that I have biases that blind me. Here's another bias I thought was interesting it's the confirmation bias. The confirmation bias is that I look for information to support what I already believe. I look for the arguments to support what I already believe, and this explains why a teenage girl and her mother can look at the same boy and come to drastically different conclusions, right? Because the teenage girl is looking for arguments to support her position, right? She's not seeing the whole picture. we're, we're guilty everybody is guilty in different areas of our life of the confirmation bias here's what I'm just trying to say that I think it's important for us to finally come to this place it's not a weakness to recognize and to realize you know what there are probably biases in my life that blind me and as followers of Jesus can I submit to you that there are biases in your life that blind you from what God is wanting to do in and through you And this was true of Peter, and it's true of me, and I hate to say it, it's probably true of you. So what do we do with this? Here's the second point. Allow God's word to reveal your biases. Allow God's word to reveal your biases. See, Peter had to come to this place of recognizing the biases, and God had to go to extraordinary lengths to communicate it to Peter. Had to put him in a trance. Uh, Here's the thing, I believe in visions. I believe in dreams. I'm a supernatural guy. You don't have to convince me. Um, in, in in Joel chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, the word of God says that in those days, meaning in the last days, He said, God says I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all people. He says your sons and daughters will prophesy. He says your young men, I would even include young women, will see visions and your old men, your old women will dream dreams. Here's the thing. I believe in visions. I believe in dreams. Now I believe that God will go to extraordinary lengths to communicate to his people. But here's the thing. We have the Word of God. Peter didn't have this. We, we have the Gospels. We have the writings of Paul. We have the writings of Peter. We have the writings of John. We have the writings of James. Like, we have all of this here. And, and what the Word of God is wanting to do is the Word of God is a mirror. It exposes who we really are. It shows us what's really going on inside of us. In fact, Paul was once writing to his, you know, associate, his, uh, a pastor named Timothy. And he said this in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, listen, all scripture is god breathed. In other words, all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, and it is useful. Like, it, do, it does stuff. If you'll let it, it wants, it wants to do stuff. It wants to be a change agent in your life. And what is it useful for? He gives four things. He says it's useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Righteousness means being right and doing right. Like the whole point of, for me as a follower of Jesus is, is to be right and to do right. I wanna be right, I wanna do right. Now how do I do that? I allow the word of God to expose things in my life. I allow the word of God to reveal biases in my life. And listen, think about the wording that Paul uses there. To teach, okay that's cool, I'm, a, I'm down with teaching, rebuke, how many of you here like being rebuked? No. no. We don't like being rebuked, right? But this is part of growing. This is part of transformation. Like the best coaches, if you, how many of you guys uh, did some kind of sport in high school, right? The best, that's it. I think the rest of you are just being lazy. The best coaches, right? The best coaches don't, like, don't like carry you around on a pillow and, hey, you know, hey, angel. Hey, you know, cream puff. You no, know, the best coaches will be like, you're doing this wrong, and let me show you how to do it. Right? They'll bring, they'll bring rebuke. They bring correction. They bring training. And this is what the Word of God wants to do. But here's the thing. I have to be humble. I have to be teachable. I have to be receptive. Or I'll never get it. And here's the other thing. I have to be in the word of God. Follower of Jesus, a verse of the day on an app on your phone is not enough of the word of God for you. You need to be systematically in the Word of God. And if you don't know what that means or how to do that, we've got incredible leaders in our church who would love to sit down with you. We have pastors in our church who would love to show you, hey, start here. We'll tell you what book of the Bible to start in. We'll show you how you can actually do it. We'll, we'll, we'll do everything we can to coach you in that. But you've gotta be in the Word of God. And when you approach the Word of God, you've gotta approach the Word of God with humility, not thinking I've arrived and I already know everything. And that's what a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians come to the word of God looking for verses to support the beliefs that they have that aren't even scriptural to begin with. See, I've got to have humility. It's amazing how when I was in my 20s coming right out of gra- uh, uh, undergraduate school and graduate school and, and, man, I had doctrine down and I had my theology all straight and, and I knew everything about the Bible and people would come up to me and, you know, are you this, are you this, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, are you amillennial? You and I, oh, I had all the answers. I knew it all. I knew where they were wrong and I knew the passages to take them to. Other Christians who themselves had scripture to, pr- to, to defend their points of view, You know what I've learned over the years? There's so much that I don't know. And that's okay. I don't don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to know it all. I don't have to be God's gift to every person doctrinally and theologically. What God would much rather have is someone who is humble and teachable and just say, God, I'm just your servant. And today I'm coming to your word, and as I read your word, would you correct me? Would you? Would you rebuke me? Would you train me? Because I want to be your man. Here's the deal. We all have, everyone in this room, we all have biases that can blind us. And and we all need to be going to the word of God because the word of God will reveal those biases. But here's the third thing. You've got to be committed to a journey of transformation. You've got to be committed to a journey of transformation. You say, Ken, what do you mean? The The best way to describe this is to look at this story in Acts chapter 10 of Peter. So we have Peter, who, and I've mentioned this several times in this sermon, he literally followed Jesus, like physically, actively followed Jesus for three years, ate with Jesus. They slept in the same places, like they, they, he was around him constantly, can you imagine, for three years, and yet even after those three years, there were still things that he needed to learn. And I love the patience and the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, of how the Holy Spirit led him into these truths. Did you see? So so it starts in Acts chapter 10 with verse 6. Where was Peter staying when he got this revelation from God? He was staying at somebody else's home. Do you remember the name of the guy that he was staying with? Simon Simon, the what? Really important, the Tanner part. Okay, so who is Simon the Tanner? Simon the Tanner is a Jew, and he was a Tanner which meant that he dealt with dead animal carcasses. If you're Jewish, dead animal carcasses are totally and absolutely off limits, right? So most likely, Simon the Tanner lives outside of the city limits. Most likely, he lives in a perpetual state of uncleanliness. And for whatever reason, we don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, Peter is staying with the dude. And I got to imagine that that in and of itself was a huge leap for Peter to make. But the Holy Spirit had dealt with him. The Holy Spirit had moved him. And so here he is. That's the first step, right? I'm going to get you into staying with Simon the Tanner. So now he's at Simon the Tanner's house. And then he has this Acts chapter 10 experience. The sheep comes down. The creatures kill and eat them and and all this stuff, right? And that's the next step, right? And then he goes to Cornelius' house. And he steps over the threshold. And that's another step, right? What is God doing? He's growing him. He's maturing him. He's experiencing transformation. But let me ask you this question. Had Peter now arrived at the end of Acts chapter 10 after this weekend or after this week of staying with Cornelius? Was he now perfect in this area where he had been blinded to these biases? Well, you can tell by the way I'm asking the question that the answer is probably no. You say, well, how do you know that? I want to read to you just a a short part of a letter that Paul wrote many years after this Acts 10 passage that we just read together. Paul Paul had had an interaction with Peter, and he thought that it was important for the church in Galatia to know because they had been a part of the issue. And so Paul says this about Peter. Okay, you guys all following me here? I'm I'm trying not to make this too nerdy, but this is so huge. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is writing. He says, but when Peter, who we've been talking about this whole sermon, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very what? Oh, crap. What's he doing? When he first, when Peter first arrived, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came... Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Well, why, why not? He was, Peter was afraid of what? He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. You keep reading and Peter goes, I, because he did this with all of his friends around and everybody else around, I, put, I, I went to him right in front of all of his friends and said, what you're doing is not right. And he rebuked him and he corrected him. And here, here's, Ken, where are you going with this? Where I'm going with this is, as a follower of Jesus, I need to get used to the fact that I'm gonna be, I'm in for a journey of growing. I'm in for a journey of maturity. Here's what I'm trying to combat. I'm trying to combat this idea that I pray a sinner's prayer and my life is now perfect and I get everything right and there's no more dysfunction in my life and there's no more blind spots and there's no more biases. No, that's not true. If you will be humble... God will over the rest of your life. Doesn't that sound daunting? God will be faithful to reveal the biases and the blind spots. And he'll be faithful to grow you and to mature you. If you're up for it, if you're willing, he will grow you and mature you. Are you committed to growing in God no matter what? I hope you will be. Because this is a disconnect. When the world looks at the church, let me tell you, there's a disconnect because they see Christians who have prayed to prayer, but Christians who are not really committed to being right and doing right. And we need to be committed to that. Because if we were committed to that, I can't even tell you the difference that we could make in this world. So some of you about now are going, Ken, did you totally forget about communion? I came in, I got my cup, it's been sitting next to me this whole time, now it's on the floor next to me, I don't even know where the grape is, it went rolling somewhere. Can you forget about communion? No, I didn't forget about communion. We're going to do communion a little bit different this morning. I, when I was reading this, I, I was talking to a friend, um, my friend Kevin Miller. He was in the first service sitting over here. We we're talking about this passage, and he said, you know what really grabs me? And he said something that I hadn't even looked at. I mean, I studied this. I hadn't even seen. And he said, here's what, what I get is that Peter was forced to eat at the same table with these individuals. He said, well, you know, when they, came, when they came from Caesarea to Joppa, you know, And then when he went to to Caesarea and he's eating in Cornelius' house, like, I mean, part of this deal was sitting at a table and eating. You know, my, my gears just started turning with this. And I think for some of us in this room, you know, one of the things we need to do is realize that we all come to the same table. And when we all come to the same table, it's not about me and it's not about you, it's about the Lord, it's his table. We come to his table and our focus, the eyes of our hearts are focused on him. And here's the other thing, when we come to the table of the Lord, we realize none of us deserve to be at this table. In fact, can I say it this way? We were all outsiders, undeserving. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, empowers us and enables us to come to his table. Then really, when you think about it, you boil it down, it all comes down to the lordship of Jesus. So we're going to do something this morning. It's a little different. In fact, it's a lot different. We have never done communion this way, at least in this building. I want to encourage us to share communion together. That's what communion is supposed to be. Communion, even in the word itself, is about union. It's about unity. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And if you have that communion with you, go ahead and, and pick that up with you. If you're able, I'm going to ask everybody to stand we're gonna you're gonna have to this is gonna be awkward if you're introverted this is gonna be super awkward you're never gonna want to come back to journey church again that's all right you'll get over it i want you to find okay listen to all the instructions before you do this i want you to find five to seven people and there's got to be at least a couple people in there that you didn't drive here with this morning okay And I would prefer that there's some people that you don't even know their names, okay? And to do this right, you're gonna have to move chairs. Some of you are gonna have to move, you know, there's a whole bunch of space up here, there's a whole bunch of space up here behind the platform, there's space. You can move chairs, you can do whatever you want. But here's the first step, and I'm gonna lead you all the way through. You don't have to worry, don't be anxious how this is gonna go, what am I gonna have to say? What's gonna go down? I'm gonna lead you step by step through this. But the first step is you gotta get in a group of five to seven people, okay? And go. Hey, if you're really brave, if you're really brave, go to the other side of the room. If you're really brave, find a group of people you have no idea who they are. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Okay, is anybody still looking for a group? You're looking for a group? Oh, you need one more? Well, it doesn't have to be exactly five. If if you're at four, you're good. All right, okay, here's, here's what I want you to do first. I want you, first of all, to go around your circle and everybody introduce themselves. You might say, well, I already know everybody's name in my group. That's all right, maybe somebody forgot, okay? So go around and introduce yourselves. here's the next part the next step is this I need someone just one person in each group to volunteer to pray I don't want you to start praying yet I just need first of all someone to volunteer to pray now here's the thing if you don't want to pray just stare at the carpet and wait Wait for somebody else to volunteer if nobody volunteers raise your hand and Carrie will come and pray for your group okay she, she loves that Okay, so f- go ahead and do that in each of your groups. Someone, someone's got to volunteer to pray. All right, does every, every group have a volunteer? Again, wave your hand if someone hasn't volunteered yet. You got, you guys don't have anybody. Okay, okay. Here's what I want you to pray. I told you I would give you a specific. Here's what I want you to pray. Shh. The, You're really the only person who cares about this in each group is the person praying. Okay, here's what I want you to pray. Before we pray for the communion, we're going to do that in a moment, I want you to pray a prayer of blessing over the people in your group, okay? And you say, well, how do I do that? That's a great question. If you don't know the answer to that, it's a great question. A prayer of blessing is just, God, protect this person. God, provide for this person. God, accomplish your purposes in this person. God, you know, just prosper this person. Whatever it would be, just pray a prayer of blessing over the people in your group, Okay? So that's first, go ahead and do that, and then I'll prompt you with the last part. All right, if you're still praying, keep praying. I wanna now lead us as as groups all over the sanctuary, I wanna lead us in communion. So first of all in that cup is the cracker. Would you take that cracker? This cracker reminds us of the broken body of Christ. And so when we eat it, it is a reminder that his body was broken for our brokenness, right? So let's go ahead and eat together. And now would you grab that grape. In a moment, we're going to crush that grape in our mouths and juice is going to come. And that juice reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was poured out, not only for our salvation, but it was poured out for our healing. The prophet Isaiah says that it's by the torn flesh of the Messiah that we are healed. And so would you now eat that grape together, reminding us of the blood of Jesus poured out for us And now we're gonna do an all pray. All pray is like an all skate when you were in junior high. It means we're all gonna pray at the same time and I challenge you to pray out loud together. And let's just pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Can you do that? A prayer of thanks, a prayer of praise. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. Thank you for your love for us when we were outsiders, when we were far from you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you so loved us. We praise your name. We love you, Jesus. We commit ourselves to you afresh and anew. We commit ourselves, God, change us. Show, reveal the blind spots. Show, reveal the biases in our lives, God. That we might be obedient to you. Allow your word to correct us and train us. And God, may we be committed to a lifetime journey of following you and being changed and made more like you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.